dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host. We're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And if you value what we do, we'd love to have your support. You can visit the donations page of the Fallon Forum website. And if you run a local business or a nonprofit doing good work in the world, consider becoming a sponsor. You know, if you're listening to this live broadcast, uh, we can have you join the conversation if you like. Text us your name to 515-519-6323. That's 519-6323. So in terms of our sponsors, thank you Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Uh, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. They've got a catering and floral service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You can learn more at groovy-goods.com or just stop by at 23rd and University in Des Moines. So I'm going to go right to it here, folks. Uh, here's um, here's uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, co-opting Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech quote, the most famous quote, to justify his opposition to teaching about race in schools. We haven't been paying attention for the last 20 years. Critical race theory goes against everything Martin Luther King has ever told us. Don't judge us by the color of our skin. And now they're embracing it, right? <laughs> so you got to kind of love that. That's McCarthy basically saying, yeah, if King were alive today, he would be on my side regarding race relations. So Leonard Pitts, and full disclosure, I organized a visit to Des Moines by Leonard Pitts back in oh, 2009, where he came to uh, talk about marriage equality. Leonard Pitts has a great Martin Luther King Day column in which he kind of sticks it to McCarthy. And those who like McCarthy want to use Dr. King to support stuff that Dr. King would never have supported. Uh, Pitts writes, uh, quote, you are definitely right about that quote about Martin Luther King when he dreamt that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then with um, perhaps not so subtle sarcasm, uh, Leonard Pitts writes, quote, did you know Martin Luther King said other things? <laughs> You'll be happy to know that they support your right-wing agenda exactly as much as your favorite quote does. For instance, use this one to show that King would have shared your love of capitalism. And here's King. Something is wrong with capitalism. Maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. We must develop programs that will drive the nation to the realization of the need for a guaranteed annual income. Well, I'm sure Andrew Yang would love to hear that one. So as Pitts continues, and like you, he surely would have condemned reparations and affirmative action. King, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him in order to equip him to compete on a just and equal basis. Pitts, certainly he didn't believe there was any such thing as white privilege. King, whites, it must frankly be said, are not putting in a mass effort to educate, to re-educate themselves out of their racial ignorance. Pitts, and he likely would have opposed ending the filibuster. King, I think the tragedy is that we have a Congress with a U.S. Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. Boy, does that sound familiar. Pitts, surely King would have sided with the makers over the takers. King, this country has socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor. Pitts, and he would have shared your contempt for Black Lives Matter. King, I had seen police brutality with my own eyes and watched Negroes receive the most tragic injustice in the court. Okay, so <laughs> the next time you hear some, usually they're Republicans, some Republican wants to go off on something and use Dr. King to defend it, remind that person of some of the other things that King said about capitalism, about racial inequality, about white supremacy. You know, it's 
King's track record is pretty clear about this stuff. And for him to believe, someone just suggests that he would believe that it would be wrong to teach racial inequality in schools and why that has happened, why that's a problem, that's really hard to imagine. Okay, so um, I want to move on. I got a lot to cover today, folks, and you're welcome to join this conversation. Again, text your name to 515-519-6323 if you're listening live, and we'll try to bring you into the conversation. So here we are, we're recording this program on ML King Day, and it is ironic that we've got to talk about the incredible backsliding on voting rights. I was seven years old when the uh, Voting Rights Act passed. That was a long time ago. And uh, it stood as the law of the land for a long time. It was just kind of one of those things, okay, that's a big, big, you know, big piece of progress we made. We're not going to slip back on that, are we? Well, we are. We started sliding back on it in 2013 when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down what is regarded by many as the, the heart and soul of the Voting Rights Act. And that is the requirement that states with a history of discrimination and voter suppression, in other words, mostly a handful of states in the U.S. South, that those states have to, uh, if, they wanna, if they wanna change election law, they've gotta first clear that with the federal government. Now, I'm all for states' rights, but if you've got a problem, whether it's voter discrimination, racism, um, contaminating water, air, if you've got a problem that affects people in a big way, in, in some cases, people beyond your own borders, that needs to be addressed uh, by a broader, more objective universe. So this was a good provision of the Voting Rights Act. Again, struck down in 2013 on a 5-4 vote. And The Guardian notes, I quote again, immediately after the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, Republican lawmakers in Texas and North Carolina, and those were two states that had been affected by the Voting Rights Act, they moved to enact new voter ID laws and other restrictions. A federal court would later strike down the North Carolina law, <laughs> writing, quote, it was designed to target African-Americans with almost surgical precision. So a small victory there, the U.S. Supreme Court saying, okay, North Carolina, you went too far, but it didn't strike down the Texas law. And we have seen so many changes. Uh, we talked about this last week with Joe Henry, with LULAC. Uh, we've seen so many changes to election law and almost none of them good. None. Okay, there was, a, there was a time there when we were seeing changes that actually made it easier to vote. Uh, good. And, and you know what? There was concern, okay, these changes will make it easier to vote and we'll have more voter fraud. Well, we didn't. You know, we expanded the uh, capacity for people to vote early. There was no fraud involved with that. We, uh, in some states like Oregon, you vote by mail. Everybody votes by mail. You know, we allowed the polls to be open longer in some places. And now we're seeing this tremendous, uh, you know, momentum in the wrong direction. Uh, we're seeing, uh, yeah, I mean, again, polling places now closing earlier. In Iowa, the uh, window of opportunity to vote early was slashed uh, by more than half, by I think 20 days. Uh, Your, you know, polls are being closed, polling sites are closing, and so you've got more people, especially in minority communities, poor communities, democratic voting communities, more people have to go um, to one location and then you have these long lines. And I think it was Georgia, you know, passed a requirement that you could not hand out a bottle of water to somebody waiting in line to vote, even if they'd been there for hours, even if it was 90 plus degrees. I mean, these, these changes are not good for democracy. They are, they're horrible. And, you know, Throw voter ID cards into that as well. I mean, okay, so some voter ID cards, so some identification cards work for voter ID, but not if you're a student in a lot of places. Of course, the worst thing of all is gerrymandering, which again, just got worse. So it's good that President Biden and congressional Democrats want to try to fix those inequities, or at least some of them, or at least begin to take a bite out of them. And to do that, they introduced the Freedom to Vote Act. But as of last week, it is probable that the Freedom to Vote Act is dead. You can thank uh, three entities for that. One, the filibuster, which again, Martin Luther King decades ago said we ought to get rid of. <laughs> well, his quote from a couple decades ago is, oh, what, four or five decades ago, is almost, let's see, six decades ago. Boy, I'm dating myself. 
his quote is almost precise in terms of describing the other two problems with the Freedom to Vote Act, and that's Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. I mean, those two senators, and I do not get me started on the mainstream media and even some others in the media, I saw this in Mother Jones even, calling them, quote, moderate. They are not moderate Democrats. They are not even conservative Democrats. They are corporate Democrats. It is becoming pretty clear that uh, Joe Manchin is an absolute tool of the fossil fuel industry. And not just uh, because of donations to his campaign. I mean, he himself has uh, gained wealth and prominence because of those connections. And, and Kristen Sinema, you know, she, she counts among her supporters 50 billionaires. Now, um, not a single one of them is from Arizona, by the way, uh, and many of them are also big Republican donors. So, again, where is your allegiance? Okay, so, you know, so again, with the midterm elections coming up this fall, which is pretty soon in political universe, uh, and uh, again, these punitive election laws popping up in states all over the country, there are some, I'm going to put this in quotes, leading Democrats, uh, uh, Democrats who have the sway within the party, they're saying that we've got to organize our way around these new voting restrictions. And my question is how? Well, uh, <laughs> they've told us how. Um, you know, not by coming up with a better message, not by, not by, you know, not by embracing the progressive populism that identifies with most of America. No, but by spending millions more on voter registration and turnout programs. Now, again, I'm all for voter registration drives. I'm all for mo mobilizing uh, people to vote. But the question is, where's that money going to come from? Where does the money to conduct these, reg these voter registration drives come from? Well, if, if you look at where the Democratic Party gets its money from, and not just looking at Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, a lot of it comes from the same corporate interests that are against a lot of what most people want. You know, it's um, the, the Democratic establishment essentially has tied its hands. I remember back in 92 when I was first elected, I raised a measly $6,000 to unseat a 10-year incumbent by a vote of nearly two to one, by a two to one margin. It'd be really hard to get away with that these days because the entry level, even for an Iowa House seat, is what, 40,000, 50,000? That's what the Democratic strategists consider a bare minimum that you've got to commit to raise just to run for a lousy House seat, 40 to 50 grand. So, you know, I mean, the problem is you can't both have a progressive message and, and, um, <laughs> and take all kinds of money from sources that are against that progressive agenda. And that's the Democrats' problem, and it looks like they're opting to continue to dig out more money. And let's go to our phone lines and welcome uh, Mitch Henry to the program. Hello, Mitch. How you doing? I'm doing good, Ed. How are you? Good. What's on your mind today? Hey, well, you know, with the, these voter bills, I mean, you, you look over 40 states in the last two years have passed a restrictive voting laws or voter suppression laws. 40 states. Yeah, usually over 40. I've heard the number higher, you know, up to 45 states in the last year. So even some, even some states that tend to vote Democratic have passed uh, voter suppression laws? Well, even some states that, you know, they may have a Democratic governor, but they, you know, their okay. House or Senate are Republican, you know, majority in one or two uh, of the chambers. Okay. And in, in, in Iowa, I mean, what's what's been uh, interesting in Iowa, I mean, we've been fighting this battle for um, almost 10 years now. I mean, getting back to, uh, you know, when they tried to, Republican leaders tried to purge the um, uh, voter, you know, voter files in right. the state of Iowa. Well, and uh, our Secretary of State did indeed purge voter files, not, uh, what, last year, year before? Well, yes, but not to the extent they tried it uh, back initially when I right. think it was Matt Schultz was the Secretary of State. Right. And after Branstad got um, reelected. So, what are you? What are your thoughts on the Democratic uh, Party, the the leadership within the Democratic Party, opting to fight against the uh, voter restriction laws by taking more money, putting more money into voter registration drives? I mean, I, I get the voter registration drive is important, but the more money isn't that a problem? Well, well, I agree with you. Uh, Voter, 
voter registration is, is very important. Uh, we need to organize our voters even better. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a long battle. I mean, it, it, you know, fighting that in Georgia or Texas or, or Florida or any other southern state or Rocky, Rocky Mountain state, I mean, it, it, it'll take years to get there. But again, I mean, we do have to elect uh, more progressive uh, Democrats, especially in the Senate, uh, but also in the House. I mean, who knows what's going to happen later this year in November. I mean, um, yeah. are the Democrats going to well, become the minor, minority again in the let, House? Let me throw one example at you. you know, there, uh, in this, uh, there may be similar laws in other states, but in Iowa, uh, you know, it used to be that anybody could return uh, an absentee ballot. Okay, if if your neighbor voted early, you could return that ballot for him or her, right? Oh, I think I just lost Mitch. Oops, <laughs> I think I just lost Mitch. Oh well, I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, Mitch, if you're still with us, call back, or we'll call you back. Let us know if you want to be. Send us a text message. We'll call you back if we can. Not sure what happened there with our phones, but the um, uh, the bottom line is, uh, you know, we now have uh, the capacity for. Um, only family members or a caregiver can bring an absentee ballot to the election office. I mean, that is huge. That is going to eliminate so many people's opportunity to vote early for whatever reason, illness, job, uh, out of town, family emergency, for some reason or another, they may not be able to vote early and now they're not gonna be able to. It's a problem. Anyway, I'm sorry to, sorry to drop that comment. I'm not sure what happened on my end, your end, or maybe, um, Maybe the DNC was listening and didn't like the direction of the conversation. Hey, um, uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the um, sinister agenda of teachers. This is interesting, folks. Uh, the, uh, a, a politician here in Iowa off the rails in terms of labeling teachers as behind a sinister agenda. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back. All right, again, thanks to the uh, local businesses that help sponsor this program, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for creatures for a long time. And well, she probably saved our cat's life last week uh, because our cat, long story, I think she was on the way out. Kim fixed her. I mean, she's, uh, yeah. She's, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we have a lot of respect for Kim and a lot of gratitude. Folks, you can learn more about Kim Holding and her business at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page at Story County Veterinary Clinic. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, welcome back, folks. If you're listening to our live broadcast, join the conversation by texting your name to 515-519-6323. Uh, before we go back to our phone lines, I want to take a second to take a minute here to point out what the uh, Republican uh, president of the Iowa Senate, Jake Chapman, had to say regarding banning of books. He said, and I quote, it has become increasingly evident that we live in a world in which many, including our media, wish to confuse, misguide, and deceive us, calling good evil and evil good. Well, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I, mean, I assumed he was talking about like Fox News or One American News Network or, or maybe Newsmax, or okay, maybe even the mainstream corporate media, because, you know, they, 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 they aren't so much as they're inclined to 
openly lie. It's just kind of just give you part of the story. It'd be very selective about what they give you. But no, that's not what Chapman's talking about. Um, he goes on to call, uh, describe a, quote, sinister agenda occurring right before our eyes. He says, quote, the attack on our children is no, no longer hidden. Those who wish to normalize sexually deviant behavior against our children, including pedophilia and incest, are pushing this movement more than ever before. Now, he got national flack for that. And he even pushed back a little bit against what he said. But, you know, I mean, that's where, that's where some of these folks are coming from. They, I, I, I do not doubt that there are some books that I would prefer my kids not read. And maybe there are even some books that probably should not be in the school library. But, um, you know, there's a way to deal with that. You just don't check those books out. You just, I mean, or if your kid accidentally spends some time reading one, gets upset about it, you have that conversation with them. You know, just to start banning books, really bad idea. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to our phone lines again, 515-519-6323. If you're listening to the live program, uh, let's welcome uh, Pat from Iowa City. Hello, Pat. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I I have a lot to say about a lot of things, as you as you well know. <laughs> so let's start. Now that you're talking about um, uh, censorship in the schools, you know my kids are old now and have families of their own. But I remember when they were in school, we had an issue with that very same thing. It, so it just doesn't go away, does it? Well, no, and some would argue that the um, the pressure to enact uh, restrictions is getting worse. It's kind of funny because some of the same people who want to put those restrictions in place also clamor for freedom of speech. I'm, I'm a big fan of freedom of speech, the First Amendment. Let's not be selective in terms of how we apply it, though. Yeah, well, what I the way I dealt with it with my children when they were in school is that I allowed them to read. I had a son who learned to read, taught himself to read when he was four. Oh, wow. So by the time he was in, in elementary school, he was reading far beyond his level. Mm. And I, I just decided not to, he was reading, one of his favorite authors was Stephen King. By the time he was seven, he was taking him to bed with him. So to read in bed. Did he have so, nightmares? So what I did was, I didn't let, I never told them they couldn't read something. But what I did was, if I'd not read the book, I would read it with them and then talk to them about what about the topics of the book, what was in the book, so that they had some understanding about it. Good. That's that's what I did. And was there ever a book that uh, rubbed them the wrong way or that you thought maybe they shouldn't have, you know, had access to without some kind of adult um, involvement? Um. Well, that's kind of hard to say because, you know, they told me what they read. And when I read it with them, we had a discussion. And no, there never was one. You know, I can't say that they never read something that I didn't, um, that they never told me about. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that would be hard yeah. to say. But uh, as far as whether there was any content in it that um, I wish they hadn't read, no, there was never any any time right. that they read something I wish they hadn't read. We've got a few more people trying to jump in the conversation, Pat. So before I take one of their calls, uh, you, you said you had a lot on your mind, so I want to give you a chance to at least um, mention one other topic that you're concerned about. Yeah, well, uh, the Democrat uh, agenda is one of the things that has been really important to me. And I, I did want to mention that I'm working with an organization called the New Iowa Project. Right. And we're doing town halls. And we are doing some town halls on exactly some of the topics you're talking about. Um, uh, in February, we're, we'll be talking about climate. Mm -hmm. And in March, we'll be talking about housing. In April, we'll be talking about aging. And then we'll be talking about voting and the importance of voting mm -hmm. and um, for our, our legislatures. And in, are, are um, May. The, so are those... the first Tuesday of May, uh, I mean, you know, every month, the first Tuesday, we'll be having those at six o'clock. Are those conversations happening around the state or in a certain location well, or virtually? It's, it's a it's a webinar. Hmm. So okay. yes, they're around the state, but we have them. Okay. We have people on webinars right. around the state at every um, every Tuesday, and people can listen in, and then we take we have 
save time for questions and answers at the end. So well, send me a um, send me a link to that, Pat, and we will um, we will uh, get the word out about it. It sounds sounds valuable and interesting. So thank, okay. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for the it. call. All right, folks, again, if you want to join the conversation and you're listening live, 515-519-6323. Yeah, so banned books, you know, I uh, <laughs> there are definitely books that I do I would not want to read. There are probably books that I would not want my kids to have read. But, um, yeah, while, while we're, um, I, I want to get to another call, but I want to make sure I mention this, too. Uh, I had a chance, Kathy and I had a chance to travel around this past week to meet with some of the landowners along the Dakota Access Pipeline route who are also going to be impacted by the proposed carbon dioxide pipelines. And again, to be clear, Dapple crossed through 350 miles of Iowa farmland. Crossed through, I should say tore up, because that's what they did, they tore it up. Uh, in many cases, they did not repair it. In most cases, it's got damage well beyond, uh, well beyond just a few years. But now there are folks in about half of Iowa, because these three, there are now three CO2 pipelines. They would cross through probably close to 2,000 miles of Iowa farmland. We're still trying to figure out where the third pipeline is going to go, but probably looking at 2,000 miles of Iowa farmland torn up. And a bunch of it on the, on, on the, on the Dapple route. So these folks who had this, I mean, some people were okay with it. I get that. But for a lot of folks, this was a traumatic experience, having these pipelines cross their property, and now they're going to have to go through it again. It's just, it's so, it, it's wrong. I mean, it's wrong from a climate point of view because this kind of carbon capture is not a climate solution. An eminent domain should never be used for a private purpose. Anyway, um, we could talk more about that. This is kind of an open day conversation. You call in. We can talk about whatever's on your mind. Let's go to our phone lines and welcome Ron Yarnell. Hello, Ron. How's it going? Hey, how you doing, Ed? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I, 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 I understand uh, why some parents, uh, particularly with uh, uh, sexual matters, uh, are a little nervous about what their kids might be reading. Right. Although sometimes I think what they're really afraid of is that their kids will decide that they're gay. <laughs> Or their kids will decide that they're transgender or something. I, but I'm just kind of baffled by the whole idea of, of parents policing their kids' reading because I don't know when I was a kid, my family let me read anything I wanted to read. Yeah, I, I read all I read all fifty Hardy Boys uh, books. I, maybe I'm not sure that was a good thing, honestly. Well, you know, uh, you have, you'll have to decide that for yourself. But. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so I'm kind of baffled on that level, and, and of course I'm concerned that uh, there might be a wider agenda. Uh, if you can uh, ban one book, why not ban anything that you find offensive? And people can find any number of things offensive. So and where do you... I mean, when I was uh, when I was uh, in high school in the '70s, important reads to me were uh, *Les Misérables*, uh, *Adventures of Huckleberry Finn*. And uh, to kill a mockingbird, and those were books that ruffled people's feathers because they took on issues of justice and racism and those kinds of things. And, and well, uh, they, all those books have a very dim view of the status quo. So, uh, Huckleberry Finn was definitely a bad choice for me because I was one of the very first books I read, and I just thought that he was the coolest dude ever invented and everything he did was cool. I built a raft to navigate the uh, the waters of the marsh I grew up in. And I figured, well, if Huck Finn smokes, I should learn how to smoke too. And so I took some oak leaves and I rolled them into a piece of paper and I took a puff on that and realized that was the most hideous thing I'd ever accomplished in my life. So, um, yeah, so maybe, uh, you know, maybe reading those books is okay. And if you make mistakes as a kid, you know, well, that's what kids do, they make mistakes. That uh, we practice making mistakes young, so we can make even bigger mistakes when we get older, right? That's right. It's a hierarchy <laughs> of mistakes. So, so I'm so I'm just I understand on one level parents being, but I'm concerned that the people who are orchestrating this, because this is a national movement, this isn't just like local parents being upset. Right. I think they have a larger agenda, a larger political agenda, uh, than uh, they admit to. Uh, yeah. that, that seems to be the case, especially the people, for example, who signed off on the 1776 project. Hmm. Uh, I'm really sure they're not just about 
books that either have scatological language or sexual content. I think there's a larger political purpose. Yeah. Well, I remember when the diary of Anne Frank was banned. I thought, my gosh, Anne Frank? Okay. Hey, Ron, thank you for the call. Thanks. Thanks, Ed. Uh, folks, if you want to join the conversation again, 515-519-6323. Um, looking at, again, looking ahead, uh, we're going to talk about um, about corporate media and the dearth of local news coverage. Also going to be talking about Ukraine uh, and NATO. If time allows, which I hope it does, I just want to add one more thought on the uh, eminent domain for CO2 pipeline conversations. You know, I... You, the, the the political universe is is just aligned to make this happen, just like they were with DAPL, just like they have been with pipelines all across the country. Uh, you know, and, and you look at who's opposed. It tends to, tends to be rank-and-file people across the political spectrum who don't have a lot of clout or power. And, uh, and, and it's, um, in, in the case of the CO2 pipelines, there are a whole bunch of people who are against that that don't get that climate change is a problem, but they don't believe that the argument that, uh, that these pipelines are needed to address climate change makes any sense either. And on that we agree. On that we agree. Uh, when we get to this, talking about what we do believe about climate and how we address it, that's a harder conversation in some cases. But the universal concern for people I've talked with across the Dakota Access Pipeline route and all those who are going to be affected by the CO2 pipelines in Iowa and beyond. Again, this is not an Iowa problem. Just these pipelines in the upper Midwest is a huge, um, you know, a, a, a huge spread. We're looking at, what, six states affected. And you're looking at pipelines all over the country. I mean, right now, there are 5,000 miles of CO2 pipeline. They want to expand that to 65,000. So that's everywhere. That's everywhere. And it's all being done in the name of climate change by companies like Valero, BlackRock, um, Bruce Rastetter, who if you're not from Iowa, you don't know who he is, but he's, uh, he is the face of corporate ag. Um, <laughs> these are not people who care about the environment. And they're also apparently not people who care about the historic uh, protection of private property uh, from the use of eminent domain for anything except a public purpose. All right, I gotta take a short break. We'll be back after a short conversation here, folks, stick with us. A reminder, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website. Thanks to a psychiatrist, Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, anywhere in Iowa at all, you can, uh, you can get uh, help from Dr. Drake through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. You can contact David Drake, familypsychiatry.com. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. All right, welcome back, folks. Again, if you're listening to our live broadcast, you can join the conversation at 515, let me be clear, by texting your name and ideally your hometown to 515-519-6323. That's 515-519-6323. And this program airs live every Monday at 4 o'clock on the Fallon Forum Facebook page. 
So you might be listening on one of the, I think, six radio stations that rebroadcast the program, order a podcast. Awesome. Thank you. If you ever want to be a part of the live conversation, check out 4 o'clock Central Time on the Fallon Forum Facebook page. All right, so um, again, I'm taking calls on whatever topic you want to talk about today. I want to talk a little bit about the corporate media. I've got this um, love-hate moment going on here, folks. Uh, I was very grateful to the New York Times for one of their editors being on last week. And um, yeah, that, that was a good conversation. We talked about the postcards from a world on fire. This is a very dynamic presentation put together by the New York Times about the impacts of climate change in nearly every country. Not the potential impacts, the current impacts. Good stuff. But what I don't get is why, like Saturday, I, I mean, every day I get an update from the New York Times, the top stories. And I tell you, it's almost, COVID is almost always a top story, if not the top story. I'm getting kind of tired of that. <laughs> um, what I would like to see more of is climate change. I mean, you've got this great project, these postcards. Uh, and videos from around the world. And yet Saturday's paper, 10 stories, in my inbox on Saturday morning, not a single one of them addressing the climate crisis. So what's the disconnect there? Um, you know, there, there's so much more going on here with the media than just that, though. Um, Alden Global Capital, maybe you've heard of Alden. They're, um, or Alden, I'm not quite sure how to say it, but they are a huge hedge fund company. They like to buy smaller papers. And again, Lee Enterprises isn't exactly a small newspaper chain. They've owned, they own 90 papers around the U.S., including several here in Iowa. Uh, they received an unsolicited bid from Alden saying, we want to buy you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think they said no, because Alden has a reputation of just firing, of, of downsizing the newsroom, selling stuff, and, um, and uh, laying off journalists left and right. <laughs> now, an interesting interview, uh, one of my favorite media publications is FAIR. That stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And they do a great job at investigating, at analyzing what the corporate media does. So um, Craig Aaron, uh, I forget his title, but he was doing an interview with uh, Janine Jackson, a reporter with FAIR. And he says, quote, a hedge fund vultures like Alden go into a community to squeeze and cut back on the newsroom they're there to sell off the buildings and equipment and put out the bare minimum kind of daily news product until they can take as much money out as possible. And of course, you know, that means you've got, instead of a, a paper owned by local people who know what's going on locally, who want to report on what's going on locally, you've got this hedge fund that doesn't give a darn. They just want to make as much money as possible with as little expense as possible. And honestly, it's not that much different than what happened to the Des Moines Register that they're now a Gannett paper. I mean, the Des Moines Register used to call itself the paper that Iowa depended on, all 99 counties. And then they scaled it back to a smaller central Iowa area. And then they scaled it back to what's called the Golden Circle. And it's called the Golden Circle because gold is money. And money is what Gannett's after. Now, you know, I will say, I know some of the folks who work at, at the Register and they're good people trying to do really important work, you know, but this, this, this lack of local control over your news source is a huge problem. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 in my experience, it's, it's worse, it's, it's bad everywhere, but it's really, really bad in radio. What happened to me back in, I mean, I've been doing this program for going on 13 years now. And for the first couple of years, uh, there were, Three hours, let's see, four hours a day, I think. Four hours a day of progressive talk out of 24 hours. So 20 hours of conservative talk, conservative or even further to the right. Genghis Khan talk in some cases. And four hours of, uh, of those of us who, two of us, who had kind of a different perspective. Progressive, call it. And uh, when a bigger company came in and bought that station, they shut it down. They, they didn't, well, actually, they, they made less money by getting rid of us. But they, um, <laughs> they, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a mess. Um, and I don't know what to do except to encourage those who do own local papers to stand strong, uh, resist, and even, even again, Lee Enterprises, ninety papers, not exactly small, but stand strong. Don't let a hedge fund company bully you out of the market. 
Don't just stand strong. All right, go to our phone lines. Let's welcome uh, Marty to the program. Hello, Marty. How are you? Not too bad. What's on your mind? Well, I don't like her, our governor's plans to give all these big tax breaks. That and we got record amount of money and surplus funds. Yeah. And basically, you know how that's going to work. The, the people at the upper income level are going to get the most of it. And it's going to trickle down to where the people that really need it aren't going to get hardly anything. And then it's going to run off resources, future resources for those people that need it to get uh, government services that they need. Gee, has that ever happened before? And I don't know. <laughs> we, well, we should just keep most of the money and then get some tax breaks back. But I don't understand why we have to give it back when there is a surplus. Right, I know. Yeah, no, there's, there's, um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and I think, uh, I mean, I was at the state house for 14 years, all under Republican control, and there were some tax breaks that the Republicans offered that I agreed with. For example, when they wanted to eliminate the sales tax on utility bills, that made sense to me because there were a lot of folks, low-income folks, who were being hit hard by utility costs. Uh, we had one winter that was really cold, and the heating fuel prices were way up, and so. Low-income people were able to save some money doing that, but that's the minority. Most of the tax cuts offered by Republicans tend to be tend to benefit the upper crust and at the expense of average working people. And so I, I think you're right. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, I know what Reynolds is saying, uh, a flat tax. And, you know, I mean, there, there are states, there are progressive states that have a flat tax, Massachusetts, uh, for one. And, uh, you know... There's an appeal to that because taxes are so, you know, there are so many, um, so many cases in which, uh, you know, tax forms get to be really, really punitive. The federal government even worse. But, so last thought before I move on to one more call, Marty, what else you got on your mind? Oh, you know, I just don't like this guy. You know, when I moved back to Iowa, they had, they had taken my money out of my savings account because they had had no contact with me in three years, you know how I do it. And uh, I think that's a taking. What's your opinion on that? Well, it depends on... They passed a law, an ex post facto law, that says that anybody has a bank account, they go in and take savings, they take your safety deposit box or break into it and take everything out of it. Yeah. But we'd have to... The state is, is considering that their property. And I'm wondering if they're using that when they figure out how much money we have. Well, there is that, there is something that's that there is something controlled by the treasurer of the state's office called the uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's a big chunk of money. It's kind of unclaimed money. But yeah, there are some cases in which you question whether they really did the due diligence needed to find out who that money actually belongs to. So, if that was the case in your situation, yeah, I would consider that a taking. Hey, Marty, I got to run to another call before we run out of time here. I appreciate your phone call. Thank you. All right, so uh, yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna get. Uh, I think we get one more call from uh, Frank in a second here. But while we're waiting for Frank to uh, connect with us, I wanted to um, move on again. Media, keep it small, keep it local, keep it focused on your community, ideally. And if you got to look at the big picture, as we obviously need papers that look at the big picture, make sure they're locally owned as well. Uh, okay, so Ukraine, Putin. Um, the West's NATO problem. I mean, you know, again, fair, great, a great publication, fairness and accuracy in reporting. You know, NATO has um, grown by 14 countries since the end of the Cold War. I didn't, I, I was not aware of that until I did a little research. And NATO has expanded right up to Russia's border. And uh, that was in violation, apparently, of promises made by the elder George Bush and Bill Clinton to both Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Now, uh, you know, Fair points out that the U.S. corporate media uh, are demanding that Washington escalate the risk of the bore of the uh, of a bigger war um, while misleading their audiences about important aspects of this conflict. Um, for example, in the New York Times last month, uh, retired U.S. Attorney Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman wrote, and I quote. The U.S. must support Ukraine by providing more extensive military assistance. The U.S. should consider an outer-cycle division-level military deployment, whatever that means, to Eastern Europe to reassure allies and bolster the defenses of NATO. Now, you know, I mean, we, we complain about Russia's meddling with the U.S. election in 2016. Well, 
Russia complains about us meddling with the um, with uh, <laughs> with uh, Viktor Yunukovych, the um, duly elected Ukrainian president. Not a great guy, you know, but elected. I mean, and it was a fair. It was as fair as an election can get. <laughs> fairer than what happens in Russia, and uh, so so you've got you've got you've got this you've got fair on one hand, and then you've got the Cato Institute, the libertarian thinking Cato Institute, that says you know there's an abundance of outrage in the U.S. about Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election, um, and yet again we don't we don't pay attention to what the U.S. did there, and, and so you know I guess. I'm real concerned that this conflict will escalate into something much more far spread, uh, much more serious, unleash, unleashing the possibility of some nuclear weapons being involved. If we don't start shifting our mentality as to how we view the way to deal with this. Again, Putin, not a great guy, but the U.S. track record in the Ukraine is not very impressive either. All right, let's go back to our phone lines for one more call to Frank. Hello, Frank. How you doing? Good, Ed. How are you? Well, if I was any better, I wouldn't know how to handle it. Oh, okay. <laughs> what's well, on your... What's... Well, I've, I've been like a one-armed paper hanger here. <laughs> uh, I've been having issues with my phone, so they got my phone going through the computer now, and when up, my computer updated, I lost my phone app, and I'm searching all around for it, frantically trying to get on air with you. Okay, so now that we've accomplished that, what's on your mind? Well, you know, a couple of things, Ed. You know, Martin Luther King, let's get away from the color of people's skin. Let's legitimately get to content of character. Let's call bad apples bad apples. If there's bad cops, there's bad cops. If there's bad criminals, there's bad criminals. If there's bad politicians, there's bad politicians. Let's quit blanketing everyone with, uh, you know, defund the police because there's a few bad apples in okay. the police department. There, you know, the, the police department is just a... A reflection of society. Yeah, let's do that. But first, but first, but first, but first, don't, but first, don't we need to end systemic racism? Yeah, we need to address racism, but we 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 can't upset those. You know, like you know, you had a post not too long ago about indigenous people, and uh, you know, upsetting the cart on Columbus Day. Oh. You know, we just can't redo the whole world because there's a few people that got their. Uh, you know, that don't feel like they're being treated properly. Let's address that particular situation and not start upsetting all our holidays and try to reinvent all our holidays for political correctness. Okay, what about renaming the Browns and the Washington, quote, Redskins? I didn't like that. Um, you know, are we going to go after the Chiefs? Are we going to go after... Well, I think actually there are plenty of people. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind going after the Notre Dame Fighting Irish either. But uh, that to me is less serious than, than going after some of the names that uh, have been commonly well, used to disparage Native Americans. Yeah. And, so, and as far as curriculum on uh, on the Bannon books, yeah, Ed, you know me, I'm I'm never for censorship. According to what you said earlier, I think we'll agree on this. Is I think there has to be a certain amount of age appropriateness to the curriculum that we have in our schools. Sure. I don't think we should be bombarding our, our kindergarten students and our, you know, um, um, you know, grade school students up to about four or five, six grade right. with a bunch of stuff they really shouldn't be exposed to. So I think a lot of this curriculum, while it shouldn't be censored, should certainly be, you know, looked at to be age yeah. appropriate. Yeah. Frank, uh, thanks for the call. And certainly we don't want second graders having to read uh, War and Peace. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that, thanks again. Thanks again for the call, Frank. Right. Appreciate it. Hey, folks. Uh, we got to take a short break. We'll be right back with Kathy Burns joining us to kind of analyze the proposal by President Biden to add fairness to the meat processing business. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design and design build services 
for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Remember, folks, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit doing good work, you can become a monthly sponsor as well. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham's knows that we have to build better health for people and planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, welcome back. And joining me now for our farm and food conversation is Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy, welcome to the program. Hi, glad to be here. Big stuff happening. Yes, yeah, so we're looking at the Biden-Harris action plan regarding uh, more competitive, fairer, and I guess, as they call it, more resilient meat and poultry processing. Right. The uh, the name of the plan is long. It talks about a fairer, more competitive, and more resilient system. Uh, I think if they just said competitive, that would also imply fairer and more resilient. But it's it's <laughs> nice to spell it out in the title, even if it is long. All right. Um, from their fact sheet, I'm I'm going to quote. Over the last few decades, we've seen too many industries become dominated by a handful of large companies that control most of the business and most of the opportunities, raising prices and decreasing options for American families while also squeezing out small businesses and entrepreneurs. I could not agree more. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> we do agree. We do agree. Um, it's about mon monopolization. Yeah, well, that's been a big problem in, in America, business and agri, agri and and the farm economy forever. Mm -hmm. Monopolies, I mean, yeah. Well, and it's getting it's getting worse. It's a really bad problem because right now, four large meat packing companies control eighty five percent of the beef market. Four, um, four of them. Four, wow. right? And those are Cargill, National Beef Packing, Tyson Foods, and JBS. And I looked that up. I wasn't sure what does that stand for. So it was named after it's the guy who established it, a Brazilian rancher named Jose Batista Sobrino or something. And then um, in 1953, so they just oh, bought out Swift in 2006. I, I didn't know what JBS stood for. I do know that that Smithland, uh, Smithfield rather, mm -hmm. yeah, which I believe is the largest. Um, I, that's, I wasn't. I wasn't in your list. I, I'm surprised. I think they're owned by the by a Chinese corporation. I think they are, yeah. and I think they're um, one of the largest pork, uh, pork uh, yeah, processors. Okay. I couldn't find the list of those. I kept finding producer finding producers, not processors. In poultry, the four top processing firms control 54 percent of the market. Again, Tyson, Cargill, but then Cisco and Pilgrims, which is actually a subsidiary of. of uh, <laughs> Uh, JBS. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. And then poultry, also 70%, um, <clears throat> the top four pork, processing mean, yeah. for pork. Yeah. The top four control 70% of the market. So it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, and you know, you used to be in Iowa, and I don't know how this is in the rest of the country, but in Iowa you'd have a, what we call a, a meat locker, mm -hmm. a small meat processor in nearly every mid mid-size, every small town around. I've lived in or near two towns that had small meat um, plants and uh, Humiston and Mingo. No, so they don't, right? Mingo does. I don't. Well, still I, does. I bet okay. Humiston still does, but they are few and far between. Uh, when that happens, when there are fewer, and uh, all the products have to pass through a, a middle person, a so, middleman, it, it, it causes a lot of problems. So what, what would the Biden plan do? Um, it... Uh, 
it, it's uh, attempting to um, give farmers more negotiating power, help consumers be able to shop around for fairer prices, uh, and um, make sure the supply chain is not disrupted. So um, four main uh, points to that, expanding independent processing capacity, supporting workers and independent processors, strengthening rules to protect farmers and consumers, and promoting vigorous and fair enforcement of existing competition laws. Yeah, and uh, I, I would, I mean, obviously the large meatpacking facilities, the large corporations that currently, currently control it all are fighting back, I presume? Um, I, I would absolutely think so. I haven't looked into that, but I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I happened to catch an editorial that presents a very real-life scenario of this. Um, mm -hmm. A farmer in Adair County in Iowa named Barb Kolbach has uh, written a very comprehensive editorial, and she says she's, quote, pleasantly surprised with the new Biden-Harris initiative. Um, she's referring to the current system as a, quote, never-ending cycle of corporate concentration and consolidation. Ooh, the alliterist, the, the, the fan of alliteration, me loves that. I right? absolutely Cycle do. of corporate concentration and consolidation. That, you know, that describes so much of American, of the American economy, and especially agriculture. Right, right. Um, I, I, just, I just loved her editorial. Um, she agrees that if the Biden-Harris policies are implemented effectively, that's a really big part. If they're if they're implemented effectively, right. um, instead of just written down and thrown you know thrown to the side, the outcome will be better for both farmers and consumers. Right, and not I mean again, but this is going to take a chunk out of Tyson's pocket, JBS, Smithfield. You know, that that um. It's going to strengthen small towns though. Oh yeah, it's good really all around. It's the only the only entity it's not good for is the, the, the big corporations. And again, in one case owned by Brazil, another case owned by China. <laughs> but, well, and and they're trying to pass off the rising meat prices on you know uh, things beyond their control. But uh, their their um, you know reports are uh, showing a hundred and twenty percent increase in gross profits and a five hundred percent increase in net income for meatpacking corporations since the pandemic began. And why is that? Just because more people are uh, buying? I think, that, I think that they're just able to blame. Uh, it doesn't really outline why, yeah. but they have the control for what price to set right now because they own most of it, and, and they're blaming it on the pandemic. So where is uh, the current USDA secretary, the Secretary of Agriculture and Iowa's own Tom Vilsack at on this? I haven't looked that up, but that is something that Kalbach in her editorial emphasizes that it's time now for people who believe in local entities having, you know, power in small communities being vibrant and farmers and consumers having better deals all around. It's time for them to contact the yeah. Biden-Harris administration and Tom Vilsack. But, yeah, Make sure that they, they do get this enacted. I mean, this, this actually is encouraging because, you know, you, this is the sort of initiative you would think maybe a small, marginalized handful of progressive legislators might propose. But this apparently is coming from the Biden administration itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, uh, I really love to have a follow up on this where we dig into what kind of response is coming from the corporate entities that would lose. <laughs> well, this was just announced earlier yeah. this month, so it's a little too early yeah. to, to weigh in on yeah. that. So we're going to have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, the other thing about uh, small meat lockers, I mean, they a, a lot of them are sur survived by processing deer hunting season, you sure. know. But uh, but there, we, um, we bought our half a hog from Chris Peterson up in uh, Clear Lake, Iowa. Mm -hmm. We had to drive a couple hours to the meat locker in Osage to get that. And apparently the meat locker in Osage um, survives uh, not just by processing meat, but don't they also sell alcohol? It's a liquor store. <laughs> a liquor store. It's a liquor and locker. And they have, that, and they have a, a vending machine up front where you can buy meat at a vending machine, if, which is awesome. If you're craving a BLT at <laughs> 2 in the morning, you can go You can do it in meat. Osage. Hey, thanks, Kathy, for joining us. Um, and thanks to our callers today and to our production team of Sherry Herdina. Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, David Drake, Family Psychiatry, Groovy Goods, 
Western Optometry, and Story County Veterinary Clinic. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, folks, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.